Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the AOC PMNR podcast. My name is Chanel Davidoff. I'm a PGY3 at Zucker School of Medicine at Northwell on Long Island. I'll be co-hosting the show with student Dr. Jake, as you all know, as the current host for the podcast. We're really looking forward to the show today as it's the first episode of the fellowship series on the podcast. During this series, we're going to highlight current and recently graduated fellows from various fellowship programs in efforts to provide students and residents insight into the fields of different subspecialties of PM&Rs and also to provide guidance for residents pursuing fellowship. This is especially essential now in the post-COVID era with limited ability to have hands-on experience and networking with current fellows. So we're really grateful to our guests for mentoring us through this time. And without further ado, I want to introduce our guest today is Dr. Nadia Zaman. She is a recent graduate of the fellowship in Mount Sinai in New York City for sports medicine. So take it away, Dr. Zaman. Um, Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into PM&R. Sure. Um, So hi, everyone. Uh, Nadia Zaman, as uh, Dr. David Up said. Um, so I am pretty much born and raised in Connecticut. Uh, I did my undergrad at the University of Connecticut. I was actually a biology and a history major. Um, and then I took a gap year uh, between uh, college uh, before I went to med school at uh, New York Institute of Technology, College, college of Osteopathic Medicine. It used to be just NICOM, now it's NIATCOM. Um, before I did my uh, both internship and residency at Northwell um, internship at Plainview Hospital, um, and then uh, where Chanel is training um, at Northwell for PM&R. And um, I just finished my sports medicine fellowship at uh, Mount Sinai. Um, and I know you asked me, why did I do PM&R? So it's actually interesting. Um, I went into med school thinking I was going to do neurology. Um, a couple of members of my family had actually had strokes when I was younger. My mom actually had a stroke when I was only five years old. So I watched her go through the whole process of like the hospitalization and the rehab course. And the rehab didn't really like stick with me as much as like the stroke management did. So when I went through med school, I just kept focusing so much on like the nervous system. And then I did like a neurology rotation. Um, and while I was working with a neurologist, I would see like physical therapists would come and visit the patients and like, you know, I met like a PM&R doctor for the first time and the neurologist was kind of like, Hey, you seem like someone that really likes to be hands-on with patients. You like talking to patients. Like, have you thought about PM&R? He was actually the first person that mentioned it to me. Um, I ended up doing a elective, um, during, I think the end of my third year of med school. Um, and I loved it because it was a perfect mix of inpatient and outpatient. I actually got to work on the TBI unit as well as do some uh, work like outpatient pain and sports. Um, and I feel like it was kind of like a whirlwind romance from there. And uh, here we are today. So that's awesome. Wow, what a what a trip. So um, <laughs> you're here, and actually, it's nice to hear your background, how you got into PMNR, because we have Jake here from a student perspective, kind of exploring the field as well. Um, I want to thank Jake for like hanging out with us today too, um, just to getting that medical student perspective perspective and inspiring, you know, your story and how you got to where you are. So yeah, I, I love to hear as many people how they got down the path that they're on. Because I don't know how this is for everyone else. But like every rotation, I'm in my third year right now, every rotation I'm on, I just think it's the coolest thing in the world. And I, I'm always just curious how people feel about their like chosen specialty, 
is it always like rock solid? This is what you're doing, or is it just like you're weighing several options and you could see yourself doing all of them? Because in my perspective, uh, and I think a lot of medical students who'd be watching this podcast, there's just a lot of cool stuff out there, and it's really you know it, it's actually like a stressful decision to try to narrow it down to something like PMNR. I think is so fascinating and interesting, and then everything else I'm doing is I'm just into what I'm learning about, and it's really hard to tell like is that normal or uh, should I, you know, should I commit to something, uh, you know, as a pre-med and just know that's what it is or so th it's really fascinating to see different processes on that. Was that like that yeah. for you, Dr. Zaman? Like you were thinking neurology, were you after your PM&R rotation, were you like locked into PM&R? It was like, like sureness in your, in your heart or was it like, you're still like, I don't know, I could do a lot of stuff. What was that like? Yeah, no, that's actually a really good question. And um, I feel like that's something that most people struggle with. So one, I mean, as a med student, even as a college student, but as a med student in particular, it's great to be open-minded. I feel like I wanted to be a million and one things at one point. I thought I wanted neurology. I, th I thought I wanted to do like immunology, like pediatric oncology. And as you go through a lot of the rotations that you do, like you said, they're all really interesting and they're fascinating. And like, you know, every moment I still can recollect like all the crazy cool things that I got to do as a med student. Um, but it always kind of also felt like, you know, this is really awesome, but like, I don't know if I can see myself doing this for my whole life. Like it's really fun for five weeks or it's really fun for 10 weeks. But there were times where, you know, I questioned like, oh, maybe this isn't for me. Maybe this isn't for me. And for the longest time, I really did think neurology was going to be it. Um, it really wasn't until I did that first uh, elective rotation in PM&R. And then I actually ended up doing two other rotations at two other places because one of the best pieces of advice that I got as a student was, you know, one rotation shouldn't be the reason why you choose to do something because that place could just be really great people in that one specialty or like just like a really great experience for you versus like another place may just be like a terrible experience or not as good of an experience so they really recommended like if you really are thinking of doing something like try to get to know people from different parts of the country from different programs um, and that really will give you a better feel for what the field is like rather than just that one environment. Right. So that's actually what I ended up doing. I actually went to three different places. Um, two of them were more in, in the New York City area um, just because it was just easier to rotate there as, as a student with like no money. Um, but one of the rotations that I did was actually out in the Midwest. And it was just a totally different area of the country, different vibe, right? Like people are just so different in different parts of the country. But the PM&R family aspect was still so similar at all these programs. Like everyone really cared about each other. Like everyone really treated each other with respect. Um, there was no such thing as like, oh, well, that's the senior resident. Like I can't approach them, you know? Like everyone was on the same level, whether they were a PGY-1 versus a PGY-4. Um, and that's what really struck, struck me really about PM&R, that it really does feel like a family. And then I would go to the conferences at, as a medical student and it just felt like everybody knew everybody and That's like so everybody true. liked everybody, you know, and like, I feel like it's grown even more now that we have the opportunity to like network online, like so you get to know so many people through Twitter and Instagram and like online, like virtual like lectures and like things like this, like on the podcast. And then you meet them in real life. And like now you have, you know, not just your like PM&R colleagues and friends like at Northwell or at Mount Sinai, but like also like your whole PM&R family around the country. Um, so I might be a little biased. Like, I feel like we're probably the most friendly and like familial of like all the different specialties, but like, obviously I'm also PM&R, so. 
Yeah. Right. No, that, that makes sense. And I, I think you make a great point. I've heard this about PMNR a lot that it is really like a very broad field and you can have a very like radically different practice environment depending on inpatient outpatient or if you're in like sports medicine or like interventional spine. And, and so I, I think like um, I'm planning on doing a rotations in PMNR, but I also know that like that's not going to be in, like a, a representative of some other type of PMNR practice setting. And so if I have a really awesome experience or a really negative experience, it's just like not to take it too seriously because that's just how it is in yeah. that specific place. And it could be totally different in a different part of the country or a different inpatient outpatient and so on. So I think that's a really good point. Yeah, I, I attest to that too. Doing uh, different electives and different PM&R programs, you know, you get a different experience. All around, I think PM&R has been a really, really great uh, community to be a part of. So on that note, uh, Dr. Zaman, what was residency like for you? And when was the moment that you decided that I want to do sports medicine? Because like you said, you have so many interests in many different fields. So tell us a yeah. little bit about that. Sure. Um, so like I said, I did residency at Northwell um, here on Long Island, New York. Um, a great experience. So it's, you know, uh, it's an advanced program. So it was uh, three years. Um, so I was coming from a different hospital, having done internships. Obviously, the, the first few months of residency are like a little bit of a blur because you're trying to learn different people. Um, you're trying to get to know your own colleagues, but also like your attendings. Uh, you're trying to get to know like the different hospital systems. And part of our residency was really like different parts of your education happen at different places. So like we do inpatient in some places, outpatient in other places. Um, but overall, I would say it was a great experience. Like I feel like a lot of what I took as a medical student about PM&R is kind of what I got as a resident. So it felt like a family. It's a smaller program. We're only you know four residents a year. Um, so you really get to know your colleagues, like their kids, their spouses, like you go to happy hours with them. Um, you even get to know, you know, like the staff in a lot of the hospitals, like our inpatient hospital was a, a relatively smaller uh, hospital where the you know, majority of the beds are rehab, but there are like some medicine people there. Um, so, you know, you get, you really got a chance to sort of get to know the people you were working with as more than just, just like people that you're working with. Um, so I feel like that aspect of residency can be really important because residency is hard and it doesn't matter what you do, you know, PM&R has had the reputation of being like right, plenty of money and relaxation. Um, <laughs> I don't think that's the case by any means anymore. I think we work quite hard. And as you guys both, I'm sure, have seen, uh, you know, patients are getting more and more complex and sick. So residency, no matter what you do it in, is a hard experience. So having the collegiality, um, having people you can go to after a stressful time, um, you know, going to PM&R, you don't expect to see people pass away. And one of my very, very last calls as a PM&R resident, actually a patient passed away after a code. Mm -hmm. And um, I still remember thinking like, this is my second to last call. And we made it through all of residency. Oh, and we were doing so good, you yeah. know, and like doing what we always think we're going to do in PM&R, keeping people alive, making people better, like improving their quality of life. But unfortunately, this gentleman was just too sick. Um, but it would have been a hard thing to get through if I had to get through it on my own. But that very same day, like my mentor during residency, like called me and was like, Hey, like I heard something happen. Like, do you want to talk about it? Or do you want to talk about something else? Like, just, do you want to just talk? And like my like co-senior colleagues, you know, did the same thing and they reached out and they were like, you know, I had a similar experience and like, I'm happy to, you know, discuss like what's happened. So I would say like overall, like residency was a great experience. 
um, for those reasons. Uh, in terms of when I figured out when I, that I wanted to do sports, I would say probably like halfway through PGY2. Um, I came into PGY2 thinking I wanted to do either brain injury or sports. And a lot of it was because I was really interested in some of like the, the stuff going out with concussions. Um, and then obviously like my, like my mom having had a stroke and then like, I really enjoyed the experience on like TBI units when I was a med student. So I wasn't sure which of those two I was really going to focus on. Um, we actually had a senior colleague of mine at the time. Um, she's actually now an attending over at Mount Sinai who was also interested in sports. And she kind of introduced me to some of the people that were available at Northwell that you can sort of shadow, um, and kind of get involved with. And then we had just recently added a primary care sports physician to, to the staff through the orthopedics. Um, so I did like a, an elective rotation, like a two week elective with him. And I feel like that just sort of solidified the deal for me because it was I got a chance to sort of like go and do a football co game coverage with him. Um, that sparked me to do some marathon coverage afterwards. And then you know I also worked in the office with him and I got to see how he gets to like use the ultrasound and like do procedures. Um, and, I, and like I was saying before, I'm a very hands-on person. I like being able to do something to help patients rather than just kind of like prescribe things and see how it goes. Mm -hmm. So all of that kind of fit really well together for me. Um, and then from there on out, I basically tried to get my hands on as much coverage as I could. You do a couple more like rotations with people to get more procedural experience and um, ended up applying for a sports fellowship as a result. Did you do any elective rotation time in sports medicine? Yeah, I did. So I actually did two, uh, sorry, three two-weekers. Mm -hmm. um, and actually two of them were in sports medicine proper, so like ACGME accredited programs. And one actually was in a sports and spine um, fellowship program, um, just to try to get an idea of like what the differences were. Um, yeah. yeah how, how do you determine? That everyone asks. So this is a question that I feel like a lot of people wonder, um, you know, especially kind of, you know, what are the differences between the two? Um, the most common thing that people know, obviously, is that one is accredited and the other one isn't, right? So sports and spine or some places go by like musculoskeletal fellowship. Um, there's a couple that are like occupational health fellowships. Um, so those are all kind of like those like non-accredited type programs. Um, and then you have like ACGM accredited sports medicine. And those actually fall under the category of primary care sports medicine. So there's like programs that are from PM and R departments, but some of them are partnered with like family medicine departments or emergency medicine, like the one at Mount Sinai, we're partnered with the emergency medicine department. Um, and those basically have to follow like a pretty strict set of like guidelines from the ACGME in terms of like what you do and don't do. Um, so I did actually a rotation in both as a resident uh, to try to get a feel for what you know each one entailed. Um, you know, I was looking for very specific things, and I ultimately decided that like the sports medicine route was more for me. Did it have anything to do with the accreditation that you wanted maybe to pursue a certain setting, like an academic setting, and you wanted to go to like more of an accredited fellowship versus one that wasn't? Did that play a role in your decision making or does that matter? Uh, so that did play a part of a role in my decision making uh, for some of the reasons that you basically mentioned. Okay. Um, I mean, I knew that I was going to be looking at an academic job. Um, and though you can still work in an academic position without the accreditation, if you've done like a sports and spine fellowship, I feel like 
in the long run, you don't know how things are going to change. And I kind of always want to stay with an academics, but I also want to have the opportunity to sort of like not hit a ceiling of like how mm -hmm. far I can go. And I just felt like the, the accreditation was really going to help with that. So it feels like more doors are still open if you have the accreditation. As of right now, I would say that's kind of how it feels, although I don't think that's actually written in stone. Like I have colleagues and I've had attendings actually that have not done sports fellowship specifically that is an accredited fellowship and are also working in the realm of like sports and spying kind of practices. So ultimately, like, I, I feel like it just depends on what you're trying to do. If you're interested more in sort of being involved in a like, acted, uh, sorry, a like a sports oriented career, like you want to be doing coverage, you want to be involved, not just in like community level coverage, but like division one, like collegiate level type of coverage or professional level coverage, you're, you're likely going to have a really hard time um, doing that without an accredited fellowship, especially for like the bigger type of programs around the country. Um, if you're more interested in like the procedural aspects, like you're not really so much interested in like covering sideline sports, but you want to do like all the ultrasound based uh, like procedures and especially a lot of like the fluoroscopically guided spine procedures, you may actually benefit more from either a sports and spine fellowship down the like more so or if you're able to narrow down some of the more sports like ACGME accredited sports fellowships that also have good spine exposure um, so generally most of the PM&R based programs you you would be able to, to do that as well so I think the important thing is really just sort of sit down with yourself and make a list of what you know are the things that are like make or break kind of things for you like things that you absolutely ha want to have as a part of your like career in the future um, and I think that would help you sort of guide you in a better direction of whether or not, you know, an ACGME versus a non-ACGME program is for you. I, I had a question about, um, from like a medical student perspective. Um, yeah. So I went to the, the AAPMNR conference in San Antonio, and I heard this thing at the residency fair, and it was just like this agreed upon thing that like uh, no one disputed. Um, but somebody was saying that the most competitive sports medicine positions, I guess, go to family medicine doctors who go into sports medicine. And I'm just wondering, like, A, is that true? Um, and then B, if I was like a, a medical student, if I really want to do sports medicine, why why should I choose to go to that route through PM&R rather than family medicine or like orthopedic surgery or one of the other routes to it? Um, yeah. Why Why as a physiatrist is that the best way to do sports medicine? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, to speak to your first question about like the most competitive spots going to people that are family medicine trained, um, I don't know if there's statistics on that, to be honest. I think part of the reason that people may think that's true is something that I've actually talked to a lot of people um, about like throughout my like sort of journey of talking to like other residents and medical students that want to do sports. Um, and it's something that actually I was talking to Chanel about pretty recently as well. Um, and it's the fact that like, there's actually a lot of primary care in sports medicine. Um, I think sometimes we get so tunnel vision about the musculoskeletal stuff because, you know, we're seeing, you know, knee injuries get treated on the sidelines. We're seeing, you know, concussion management on the sidelines. Um, you know, the big like Kevin Durant injury with the Achilles rupture. Like, you know, we always hear about like the musculoskeletal stuff, um, but there's a lot of training room stuff that we do that is really like primary care stuff, you know, like uh, treating like rashes um, for wrestlers in particular, or, like infectious, um, like etiologies of like skin issues, uh, you know, 
part of what we do is like pre-participation sports physicals. And that entails, you know, doing like a full heart and lung exam um, and like really like taking out your stethoscope again and then auscultating for murmurs. Um, so I think for that reason, a lot of people think sometimes that family medicine or internal medicine people are, are a little bit better equipped in that sense um, because they they do a lot of lung management, heart management, um, you know, diabetes management, hypertension management as residents, whereas like we don't do that as much. Um, but with that said, um, you know, our strengths come from that musculoskeletal aspect, right? So if you think about sports as kind of like 50-50 taking care of musculoskeletal injuries, but also taking care of some of the primary care aspects, you know, from the family medicine side, you know, they're a little bit weaker on some of the things that are our strengths and we're maybe a little bit weaker on some of the things that are their strengths. So part of fellowship really is, you know, improving on those weaknesses. So as a part of our fellowship at Mount Sinai, you know, we go and do pre-participation sports physicals, like before every season. Um, and, you know, we'll, we'll do the whole like auscultation stuff. We'll do blood pressures. Like we check eyesight, uh, you know, so we're, we're doing a lot of that and we have to learn it because, you know, as a ACGME accredited program, like I told you, all the programs, whether you're PMNR based or family medicine based, are considered primary care sports medicine programs. So, um, you know, through the by the end of your fellowship, you get pretty much as much or like as strong is in all of these things as everyone should be as a sports physician. Um, so I don't think that you're lacking coming from a different background uh, just because you haven't done primary care for three years. Um, in terms of why I think PM&R, having a, a background in PM&R really helps. I think during our residency, we are already treating a lot of these musculoskeletal injuries. We're already learning how to use ultrasound. Um, you know, when I interviewed for fellowships, I had already done more ultrasound than a lot of the residents that were, you know, interviewing with me that were like, uh, more like primary care residents. Um, so a lot of the programs would say, you know, we start on, on day one with like, how do you hold a probe? And I was like, oh God, like I did that two years ago. Um, so I think, <laughs> like I said, you know, different different programs will, will have the, the different angle of primary care versus coming from PM&R are gonna have their different strengths, but ultimately you're all gonna end up in the same place. Okay, great, yeah, that That's makes a lot of really sense. really good to know. Yeah. I'm really glad you asked that question, Jake, because I feel like not only from a medical student perspective of deciding which route to take PM&R, family medicine to get to sports, but even as a resident, you know, I was talking to you, Dr. Zaman, about if you're interested in sports, like what does that mean being interested in sports medicine? It, it's not just the ultrasound, the procedures, it's, it's yeah. being a primary care physician for athletes. And that's mm -hmm. so much more uh, involved, I you know I you forget that that in, that entails a little bit of medicine, getting your stethoscope out again, and mm -hmm. I feel like being in the PM&R world, you are just thinking about sports as sideline coverage and acute injuries, but it is so much more than that. So I'm really glad you you touched upon that and clarified it. Give us like kind of a general timeline residents should expect for applying for sports. Sure. Um, so do you mean like in terms of like when you should already be doing some of like coverage and things like that? Or a little just bit of that. When should you have some experience in? When should you expect uh, to be starting on applications and kind of that timeline? Yeah. Okay. 
Um, so in terms of like trying to figure out whether sports is for you and like getting some of the, the coverage in, I would say focus on two things. Um, one is longevity. They like to see longevity of coverage. So, you know, don't just do coverage like for a couple months right before the applications. That really doesn't show like a commitment to sports. Um, the earlier you start, the better it is. But I, I like to say that no time is ever too late. So like if you, you know, I was fortunate enough to sort of discover that I liked it um, early enough in my PGY2 year that I had most of that, most of my PGY3, some of my PGY2 and, you know, the first part of my PGY4 year to do a lot of different things. You know, you may find yourself at the end of your PGY three year, kind of like, hey, maybe I like this. It's I still don't think it's so late that you can't do things to still show that you're interested. But obviously, the earlier you start, the better. So longevity is great. And then the other thing is a variety. So like, don't just focus on the sport that you love or like the sport that you grew up playing as like the only type of coverage that you do. Um, it's great that it shows passion that you love this particular sport and that you know you think your future career is going to entail you covering just that sport um, but during your fellowship like you're not going to be covering just that sport so you know find different types of activities do a little team-based sports coverage do a little endurance kind of sports coverage so like when I was a resident you know I covered some football high school football um, I also went to like the sidelines for a couple wrestling matches. Um, you know, I covered uh, the marathon as well as a couple like triathlons. Um, so that kind of shows like a variety. And then I also covered a little bit of like combat sports. So, you know, it shows that you had a little bit of experience in all these different things. You know, different sports have more common injuries, like certain more specific common injuries than other sports. Um, so it gives you a little bit of introduction in terms of like, you know, what are the most common types of injuries that you should know how to treat. And so that way, kind of when you're as a fellow, like you're kind of treated sometimes as a junior attending. So they'll, they'll kind of help have you manage things on your own until you kind of throw up a white flag like I need help. Oh, know? wow. Yeah. <laughs> so it's good to sort of get a little bit of everything. Um, if you're able to do a little research, that's great, too. It doesn't necessarily have to be sports specific, but, you know, anything kind of in PM&R can be applicable. Um, so, you know, I did some gait training research, and that actually was really important to some of like the running coverage stuff that we did as, as fellows as well. Um, and then in terms of like the application itself, so the sports application timeline is like forever long. Like you feel like you start at the same time as everybody else, but everybody else finishes and then you still have a month before you like oh, actually gosh. finish. But you know, the applications I think open like sometime in, in July or like late June, early July. Um, and so that's the ERAS. So you basically like you go through the whole process of filling in like all the information from your CV into the application. Um, is and this you can in your PGY three year or four year. Uh, this is kind of like like right as your PGY four year is starting. Okay. So right around like July of PGY four. Um, so you kind of fill in the application. You can start sending it out to programs as early as I believe August, but interviews don't generally start until like October. So you're kind of just waiting around at that point. So that's why I said like Limbo. even like towards, yeah. So that's why I was saying even towards the end of your PGY3, it's still not too late for you to be able to still do coverage events because the fall tends to be really the most like heavy sports season um, during the year anyway. Um, and then you start to get interviews around October and November and some kind of go into like early December, but the, the match generally happens in January. So it's actually, I think the last match of all the PM and R matches, um, to send out results essentially. So the whole process is, it sounds, I think about six months long from the moment the applications open to like the day that you actually like open up, um, 
I forget what like the program's called now because mm-hmm. it's been a while, but like you yeah. open it and you can see like where, where you're going to go. Um, in terms of interviews, uh, so if you're applying to like, you know, like I was saying, there's PMR specific programs and then there's like the full gambit of like the, the primary care ones. So I think there's only about 18 or 19 PMR programs in the country. Um, not all of them are take people actually every year. Um, and there's a couple, I think the one in University of Puerto Rico, for example, you actually have to take a, a required Spanish exam. Um, and show like proficiency in Spanish in, in order to do that one. So for some people, there's only going to be like 17 programs that they can apply to. For some people, there's like 18 or 19 programs. Um, in terms of the full range, if you're applying to some of the primary care programs, there's, I think there's over like 150 programs in the country. Um, and each program takes anywhere from like one being the least to up to like, I think the largest program in the country is like seven, uh, seven fellows. Um, so you know, you apply to wherever you apply to, and then generally the PMNR ones, I think, interview a little bit earlier than the primary care ones. Um, and then it's just kind of like the match from there. Um, Dr. Zaman, I was going to ask you too, um, you talked about like, yeah, you should like be prepared to practice in all sports settings, not just like what you're interested in or what you did. And I was just curious, uh, what sports are you interested in? And did you were you an athlete growing up? Are you currently an athlete? You know, what do you do for, for fun and, and what sports are you drawn to? And is that something that you can like reasonably expect to practice in a setting? Like if I was huge on football, how competitive is it to be like a football centered sports physician? Or should I just always be prepared to, you know, have like a very broad practice? Yeah, that's a great question as well. Um, so I love sports my whole life. Um, you know, I did grow up playing sports. I played a wide range of different things. Um, I played some volleyball, I played some soccer. Uh, I actually learned how to swim like relatively late in life compared to a lot of people, but it's like been one of my passions ever since I have. Um, I recently actually just picked up learning how to play tennis. So like I'm always constantly looking for new ways to sort of like new, learn new sports all the time. Um, so with that said, you know, like a lot of, a lot of coverage, uh, and also, I, I also like to run as well, which is also a more recent discovery. I used to always think I hated running, um, until recently, but with that said, so, you know, there's certain sports that you're just going to be required to cover. So like football is actually, a, uh, or a con- like some sort of contact sport is generally a requirement. Um, and football tends to be the most commonly played and the most popular one that's generally covered as the contact requirement. Um, so I've always actually enjoyed covering football a lot. I've actually always loved watching football like growing up. So a lot of times like coverage really does just feel like a day of hanging out watching sports. Um, and especially if they're a particularly great, like well-conditioned, well-strengthened kind of team with like very little injury, you literally just spent three hours hanging out on a Saturday or Sunday morning with some kids and then you get to go home and that was being on call basically. Not too bad. Not too bad. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So, um, so that was something that I actually really enjoyed. Um, and then there's some things that I've covered that I like never considered that I would enjoy and actually ended up being really fun. So I mentioned wrestling before um something that i was like never all that interested in like didn't really know all the rules going in um it actually ended up being like a really interesting um i got really into it i was like cheering really loud they were like okay you're the doctor like you're taking care of both sides you can't look like you're biased 
That that was my oh, sport growing up. I know it, it gets oh, intense. Yeah. My dad has been kicked out of high school auditoriums because he gets too rambunctious. Like it's easy to get sucked into oh, it once man. you're paying attention. Yeah, exactly. And once you kind of understand what's going on, especially, um, and then in, at Mount Sinai, we actually covered a very interesting sport that I had no idea what it was until we did it. And it's it's called Australian Rules Football. Hmm. Um, so basically, Tell us it's about like, that. <laughs> yeah. So it's. Um, you know, I'm going to say this and then like people that play Australian rules football are going to be so pissed after they hear this, but like, it's similar to rugby in the sense that it's a very contact level sport. But if you imagine like a cross between like American football and rugby, but with no like protective gear, um, that's Australian rules football. It's like a huge field and you know, they can only hold the ball for a certain number of meters before they have to throw it. You can tackle people as they're holding the ball. And the whole idea is to like try to score to get points, right? Um, just like any sport, I guess. Wow. Yeah. But it's crazy when you first watch it for the first time because people are like very aggressive. And you know, the first game that we that I covered, we had like at least three people with a concussion, like a couple people that had like like little like lacerations on their face. Um, one girl uh, twisted her ankle, and another one broke her finger and that was all in the course of like just one quarter you know um but another sport that was just like once i learned the rules and it was cool because they were trying to like the coaches were teaching us how to like hit the ball and pass the ball on the sidelines too so once we kind of learned what the rules were we watched the game it, it you really it gets so intense during the game that you then start sort of like getting into the game too um so just some like unique opportunities that I've had. Um, now, in terms of like, you know, if you're really interested in a sport, and that's the sport that you want to cover, like in your career, um, you know, some sports are probably going to be a little bit harder than others. I think the level of sport may actually be more important than the actual sport itself. So a lot of, you know, programs that don't have very robust uh, sports exposure, um, or like parts of the country where it's just like so saturated with like sports positions versus the number of sports that are available. You're probably not going to graduate from, you know, a sports medicine fellowship and then become like the head team doctor for the New York Yankees. You know, like there's mm -hmm. already someone that's been doing this for like 15 years or something that, you know, has like years of like, uh, like, sorry, uh, coverage experience behind them. Um, who's probably got that gig already. Um, so you're probably going to start at a lower level. So you may start off doing like, you know, uh, high school football coverage or community football coverage um, and then kind of grow from there because you'll get your name out. You're taking care of these kids. You may have local colleges that are like, hey, there's this new doc in town who's been doing a really great job that we keep hearing from people. Like, why don't we start sending our kids to him or let's get him involved in our sideline. Um, you know, you start to network with the athletic trainers that are in, in your local area or at the colleges that are near you. That's kind of how you build your presence. Um, is that a little bit of a long path, but I was just going to ask, is that a reasonable goal that you could become like a, uh, a team doctor for like an NCAA or a professional sport? Like, is that like a complete like rock star position where it's just like, it's like 80% luck, 20% being the right person at the right time? Or is it like you were saying you can work your way up? Um, but is that, uh, does that happen a lot or is that still because I would imagine that's really, really like astronomically hard. You just have to know the right people. Or is that like if you're willing to travel and go anywhere, like you can find a place at that level? Or how common is that, I guess? Yeah. So I 
think it's probably a mix of both of those things. So networking is huge, right? Because, you know, the more people you get to know, the more people you meet, um, you know, you kind of spread your tentacles a little bit and you may all of a sudden, you know, be at the same conference as the head team physician for like the University of Michigan football team or like the you know New York Yankees or whatever it is and they may really like you and they may invite you to come hang out with them on the sideline if they get like you know clearance from their like you know uh, respective like higher ups um, and that might be like one way that you can get into it um, most of the time and for most people it's going to be harder to get into like the professional level unless you had a lot of exposure to that or just know the right people um, a lot of it is going to be working your way up and, you know, getting to, you know, from, you know, a more local level to hopefully to a collegiate level. Sometimes you may start at like a division three and then work your way up to a two and then a one. You may just luck out and get a position that's already a division one, but it may not be a division one that's like, you know, nationally recognized yet. Um, one of the jobs that I actually applied to was going to be for a job working with uh, a group of physicians that are considered like team physicians for a division one school. Um, but it wasn't a division one school that was like, you know, part of like one like huge like program in the country, but it was a division one school. So like obviously being, you know, on a division one coverage, uh, you know, group might open up a few more doors for you than like, you know, covering, you know, a local high school or something. Um, but you know, if the sports coverage stuff is more important for you then or is like kind of way outweighs like some of the other things that are part of like the sports uh, career, then you may want to take a job that, you know, starts, you know, maybe at a lesser known, but still like a really high up, more competitive school. And then, you know, you know, that like that may open the doors for you to get to like a professional level or even to a better like uh, division one level. Um, for me, I actually ended up going to a, uh, I'm actually taking a job at a place that's actually division three um, because I love the sports coverage stuff. Um, but I also just really like the area that the, the practice is in and the way that they're going to let me build the practice and the practice aspect of it was really more important to me than like the, the fact that I, I want to like cover the Red Sox or something one day. Right, yeah. So Green I think big. Ultimately, <laughs> yeah. And you never know, like I may still make it there, but like, that wasn't like the highest priority on my list. Yeah, and it sounds like from what you're telling us, even when you graduate fellowship and you start a job, it's it's you're still growing, opening another door and eventually getting to a place you want to be. So it sounds like it's it's very dynamic and it's it's not just like you're going to be there for the rest of your life. It sounds like every job is another step to where you want to be. That's sure. really a neat quality about sports medicine is there's always room to grow. Tell us about your fellowship experience at Mount Sinai. What was the best thing about being there and training in New York City? And what was the most challenging thing as well? Sure. So Mount Sinai was actually my number one choice. It was actually a place. So one of my electives that I did was at Mount Sinai. And I just loved everybody that I met there. Um, I just love it was a two week experience. And I just got to do so many different things. Um, throughout that entire like 10 days that it just felt like a great, really like a great fit for me. Um, 
the year was basically an expansion of that. Um, I would say, you know, some of the best things. One is having co-fellows. So a lot of sports programs, although this is transitioning now, but a lot of sports programs were sometimes only one fellow. Um, and while it's kind of cool to be like the hotshot, like I feel like <laughs> you don't have someone to like share the experience with, or if you have questions, like the only sure. other person you can ask is your attendings. Sure. Um, so it's really nice to have co-fellows. And I actually had three other co-fellows because there was four of us. Um, and we just are like a tiny little family. I miss them like every day. I wanted to put all three of them into my pocket and take them to my job with me. Like it was just so phenomenal of a year. And I think a lot of it was because I had them with me. Um, the other thing um, that I like about our, our program was that it's very multidisciplinary. So, you know, it's like I said, we have a partnership with the emergency medicine department. So we had attendings from PM&R, from emergency medicine, from orthopedics. Um, you know, we work with different people pretty much like every week we were working with at least an average of three to four different attendings at any given time. Um, it was a really great wide range of exposure. Um, and the other great strength of it was like, it was the best kind of world, best of both worlds in terms of, in terms of sports and spine. And it was ACGME accredited. So they meet all the requirements of what you have to do to become a, a good sports physician. But you also get this added benefit of just getting great like spine experience. You learn all the fluoro guided like spine injections. Um, and that was huge for jobs. Like, you know, a lot of jobs are looking for sports people, but if they can get someone who's a sports physiatrist and a spine physiatrist in one person, um, you're going to be incredibly marketable out there. Oh, whoa. Um, so, so is that, is it a sports medicine fellowship, like ACGME accredited, but it's not like it doesn't present itself as a sports and spine, but you're saying you do get the spine training while you're there. Like, and if you feel like if you feel comfortable with those procedures, you can do them. And, and you're saying like you get enough of that training. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So a lot of the PM and R sports fellowships actually at one point started as sports and spine fellowships because sports as an ACGME accredited <clears throat> fellowship is relatively new. It's really only been around. I want to say in the last five to ten years. Before that, most of them were not accredited. Um, a lot of people that are like sports boarded um, and are like, uh, you know, at least like 10, to 10 years out of practice generally either were grandfathered in because they did a sports and spine fellowship or they had enough sports knowledge to be able to take the exam. You know, the whole ACGME thing is very new. So Mount Sinai was one of those. It was a sports and spine fellowship actually before it became an accredited sports fellowship. Um, so that's why we still have kind of the best of both worlds there. And I feel like that was one of the reasons why I really liked it a lot because not only was I going to get, you know, the, the aspects of sports that I love, but I was also going to have this whole other skill set. Um, and they really do dedicate a good amount of time to, to teaching spine. It isn't kind of like they advertise that there's spine available and then, you know, you do only a little bit, you don't feel comfortable by the end. All four of us by the end got very good at what, what, what we were learning. And one of my felt, my co-fellows is an emergency medicine position so like he had never done spine during his residency and he was like a rock star by the end as well um in terms of challenges during uh fellowship so obviously like the biggest challenge this year was like COVID-19 right so like COVID-19 literally shut down the city of New York City yep. and oh, also shut down Mount Sinai health system um and at one point uh there was about a week and a half where we were at home doing digitally like like conferencing with patients, calling them to see how they're doing, refilling medications over the phone, like trying to triage like how bad their pain is, whether it's really worth it for them to like go into the ED versus like staying at home. Um, and then we just, we basically got a call from our like vice chairman who's basically like, 
right, guys, they need help. Like physicians in the ICU and the floors are like burning out and they, they need our help. And like, they call no, the sports medicine fellows in. Yeah, and there we were. We were walking in like Ghostbusters. Wow. Um, and uh, what was that like? Did you feel like ready to roll, or was that terrifying? How did you feel about that? Yeah, it was terrifying up until you actually started doing it. I think because um, all you would see on the news is how many people were dying and like how many healthcare providers were getting sick. Um, and the whole like, you know, low on PPE. And so we were very nervous. And a lot of the calls right before we started doing this, um, were people just kind of like, are there N95 masks? Like, are there like all the different sizes of N95 masks? Like, you know, what yeah. are the procedures like for, are we gonna have to wear our own street clothes, like into the hospital? Like, can they provide mm -hmm. drugs? And I gotta say like Sinai, I mean, all of New York city, I think, but particularly Sinai from my experience. And they were just so good about protecting all of us. Mm -hmm. um, they made sure that we had all the right equipment. Um, if there was ever even a, a thought of there being a shortage, we knew like days ahead of time that there was some supply that hadn't arrived yet. So these are the plan B, C, and D that they have in place to make sure that we have everything we need. But I think the, the thing that made it the least terrifying of all, honestly, is like, it was terrifying for us to go into the hospital, but it was so much more terrifying for the patients that are like sitting in those beds and like on oxygen and they've never been sick before in their life, a lot of them. Mm -hmm. And now they're sick and they can't even have their families there. Yeah. So I think when you like stepped into that room with one of them and, you know, with your like giant ast astronaut suit, like you would like hold a hand or like you would uh -huh. like put your, like your phone, like FaceTime, like in front of them so they can talk to their families. Like that just took all the fear that you had about all the little things that you were worried about and just like put that aside because like there was this person in front of you that was like a hundred times more scared than you were um, and just needed to know that you were confident that you were going to make them feel better, you know? Wow. So that's like yeah, so. a crazy, you know, going into fellowship, I bet you didn't think that you were going to be going back yeah. to medicine again, like straight medicine in the hospital. And you know, it's so noble of you to you and your co uh, fellows to to step into those shoes. Um, and just having that resiliency in New York to, to be able to do that, no questions asked, like we're there. I bet you didn't think you're going to graduate fellowship being a COVID specialist, yeah. too. infectious <laughs> disease and sports medicine. Um, yeah, and I think was what was really great about it is kind of, uh, it, it reminds you that you're a doctor first. Like, yes, you're yeah. a sports medicine physician, uh, you're a physiatrist, but you're also first a doctor. And it kind of keeps you, uh, gives you a check-in of the humanistic side of, of medicine. And yeah, so that's very noble. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think at the end of the day, and it's interesting because you bring up, you know, like I hadn't done medicine in, in a few years. We had attendings that were a part of this coverage that hadn't done medicine in like 20 years, like 25 years. You know, they've been outpatient for so long, a lot of them. Um, and each of them stepped up and they were, everyone was scared. Like a lot of people have families at home. Like I was lucky, like I lived on my own in apartments. So when I got home, like, you know, I took all the necessary precautions of like, you know, making sure that I didn't put any of my like covered stuff like in the house or touch things or whatever. But some people had kids, some people had like husbands and wives um, and like full families, like their own parents and stuff at home. So, you know, it, it was, there was a lot of bravery coming from a lot of my colleagues and a lot of my attendings. And I think that helped a lot too with the fear because we were each individually scared, but collectively we gave each other a lot of strength. And I think wow. that that helped a lot. So what's it like Sounds right like now? 
has it died down? Like, I mean, obviously the, the wave yes. has peaked and died down, but like, have you resumed normal sports medicine operations or um, yes. did, at what yeah. point were you able to and everything's back to normal? What, what's that like right now? Sure. Um, so things kind of got shut down like mid-March. Um, and then, you know, we were doing a lot of like, you know, first nothing and then most COVID coverage for like the majority of April into like, I think the first week of May. And then it took a couple of weeks for them to sort of put like, uh, protocols in place for how they're going to be handling like patients coming in and out of the, the outpatient offices. Um, so there was a little bit where we were doing just telehealth from home before we officially got back to like being in the office. So that started about like end of May. And initially things like we were seeing like our like, you know, MSK, like sports, um, like outpatient patients, but we were seeing them in a, in a very like different way. So like, you know, before it used to be like patients scheduled every 15 to 30 minutes, we would see an average of like between 16 to 20 patients a day. Uh, we would do an average of, you know, on some days anywhere from seven to eight spine procedures up to like 25 spine procedures or, you know, like the ultrasound just during any uh, office visit, like you could just pull the ultrasound out and like give an injection and stuff. Um, we didn't worry so much about like all these infection protocols, right? Like, I mean, obviously there's always a risk of infection with any kind of procedure, but it was like the same kind of risk, like the whole like one in 250,000 chance kind of risk that we always talked about. Right. But now with COVID kind of in, in the, in the mix of things, um, it became like, you know, we only saw a patient every like hour in person. And then we would have like a couple video visits in between. Um, you know, it, the office felt empty because they would only have, you know, only a couple physicians in the office, you know, a couple MAs, you know, one or two secretaries versus like our regular, our regular group, which was like at least 50% larger. Um, and then patients were having to wait a little bit longer because we were only doing, you know, a one procedure every hour versus like two or three every hour. Um, so things were a little closer to normal, but still a little bit weird when we first started. I think by now, like we've started to sort of get a little bit more into the regular mix of things of like having you know a few more uh, patients per hour. They're still doing a lot of deep cleaning in between patients and things, obviously. Um, but, you know, and we're still offering like a lot of telehealth, uh, which is great. It's like this new thing that's really helpful for a lot of patients. And we found that, you know, this is something that can be used long term. Um, so in some ways, it's like we're kind of back to normal. In the new normal exactly it's, it's a new, new normal. normal i like that and in some ways the new normal has some positives than the old normal so mm -hmm. so like maybe we just it. needed that a pandemic yeah. to, to yeah. show us that we can move forward and just uh, uh, rattle the cages and make the system more yeah. efficient or something wait, like so telehealth wait, stuff so sounds that, like yeah. that's gonna stick around for a bit or is it I permanent think so. you think i think it's gonna be at least for a while maybe become permanent it's actually really helpful um for a lot of patients um there has are some its value that, yeah it has yeah, its place like, i think there's a lot of patients that we would have come to the office for even like a renewal of a prescription or something because you know you want to see that the patient is improving but over the phone it's hard to do right but now it's like you can do some of those kind of things like over a video visit. Like you can have patients do a fairly modified but still pretty comprehensive like physical exam um, over the video. Um, you can do like simple medication renewals over video. Um, I think it kind of increases your reach for patients too. Like you're not just kind of bound to, you know, your local area. We have a couple of physicians that see patients in the New Jersey and Connecticut area as well. So I think that lets you kind of expand 
um, your practice a little bit too. Um, so I think it has its merits, but there's obviously limitations. Like there's some things that are just so hard to like, I've learned like so many different ways to try to tell a patient how to do like different maneuvers or like try to talk them to, through like a spurling maneuver. And it's just like so funny sometimes. Can you show us? Can you give us an example? <laughs> like, I mean, it's so crazy. Cause it's like, I feel like I'm being very clear of like what I want them to do. And they were doing something like the opposite. Like I would try to explain to them like, okay, I want you to sit. And I want you to take like your, your head and I want you to like extend your neck back so you're looking up at the sky. And then I want you to like, uh, you know, like bring your ear to your shoulder. And then I want you to like turn like you're going to look over your shoulder to look behind you, right? What am I looking at over my shoulder? I, like how, how far? And this is like probably the most like successful, like successful explanation that I had for people. Like there were a couple times where I thought I was giving the right directions and like people were doing like all kinds of like weird, like these kind of things or like, I don't know, just like, just a, a lot of things where I was like, oh, I guess I wasn't describing what I wanted you to Specificity do. Specificity probably went down there a little bit. Yeah, yes. so. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but overall, it's like, it kind of made you, you know, you had to learn how to communicate, yeah. you know, so kind of challenged you in that way and yeah and yeah. I think education became really important because it was like you know you couldn't just give a handout to a patient mm -hmm. in the office right oh, so yeah. like you had to like really be able to sort of explain in relatively easy terms like what you thought was going on and like mm. some diagnoses are not easy to explain without models and things like to show you know um, you know, we would be holding things up really close <laughs> to the screen to try to show people. Um, but yeah, no, I think overall, like it really taught you, um, you know, how you say things can change how people interpret them um, in terms of like exams and stuff. Right. But also like, you know, learning how to really explain diagnoses well so that you can try to really educate the patients the best you can, considering you can't touch them and you can't point stuff so yeah it probably makes you like a more effective communicator like you have to practice things and I, I just imagine you probably have like a way more economy of words when explaining things and I, I imagine that's got to help you a lot in general right like you're just probably yeah. really good at explaining stuff yeah and I was one of those people that thought I was really good at explaining stuff already before so when I started realizing that like I was not, it humbled you <laughs> yeah I was not getting like the response that I thought I was gonna get like yeah it definitely it was like eye-opening like wow like you might think that you know like you're doing a really good job and like sometimes patients just want to say yes to make you think that they get it and they may not get it <laughs> that's what I do like <laughs> I just nod and I'm like mm-hmm yeah yep, I, I follow it. I follow so, mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's why it's like, you know, patients will do that sometimes because they want to seem polite, um, but they don't necessarily get 100% of what you're trying to get to them. So, like, those were, like, visual reminders to me of, like, hey, I'm not getting my message across. So that was, like, that was a good lesson. And I feel like overall, like, even if telemedicine, you know, now it's not becoming as, as prominent in practice because now we are able to see patients in the office, but I think that we can carry over a lot of those, like, communication things that we learn into our practices, even in person now. So I think it's like if, if sports medicine can do it and adapt to telemedicine, yeah. I think any specialty can do it. Cause that you, you yeah. know, the argument is like you, you, you lose that sense of touch, that sense of like, I really need to examine you manually. I need to feel the tissues. I need to feel like yeah. how things are moving. Cause that's how you train to do, you know, for the past few years. And it's, yeah. it's just very challenging, but 
like you said, I think it has its place. And I think, you know, um, it definitely maybe helps people in terms of following up and, you know, for simple things or even screening to see if they need to come into the office right. um, and see kind of a, the urgency of that through telehealth. So, yeah. Um, the other cool thing actually for sports was we could actually get people on their treadmills and their stationary bikes. Oh, at home. wow. Yeah. So that was really great because we were able to do like seat setup for the stationary bike okay. and like see their oh. posture as they're doing. So those are some of like the added positive aspects of it because in the office, like we don't necessarily have, you know, like an erg machine or, or to like see a their right. bike or something. Yeah. Like, yeah. like you're doing it all wrong. You know, like you have to do it like this right. and then it's like, now you're actually helping them in a way you never could before. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So that was one of the things that was actually really cool. That so. is a positive. Cause like you don't, you always tell them like, oh yeah, how you, how are you sitting at your desk? What's the, what level is your chair, you know, for right. your back pain? And you can kind of maybe see their home environment and be like, okay, you need to raise the seat a little bit more. You need to raise your monitor. Um, yeah. You know, stuff like that. So, yeah. And um, I, I guess we could talk about like kind of, you know, you told us a little bit about where you're off to next. You're going to Boston. Um, mm -hmm. Tell us about, you know, what you're going to be doing there and what are your overall like aspirations for your for your career? You know, how sure. as far as it may go. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Um, so, yes, I'm actually right now in between like finishing fellowship and starting a job. So I actually start in September. Um, and I'm going to Boston. I'm actually going up to Tufts University School of Medicine and the Tufts Medical Center. So I'm actually going to be their like first non-surgical uh, sports physician um, awesome. that they've had, essentially. Um, yeah, so I'm very excited. Uh, there's two orthopedic sports uh, colleagues that I'll have. Um, I'm actually working out as a part of kind of the PM&R department as well as the orthopedics department there. Um, so... I'm super excited because a lot of what I'm going to be doing um, is sort of helping build that like non-surgical sports presence at Tufts, um, taking on, you know, a, a combination of, you know, a lot of the general MSK um, needs that a lot of those patients have that they're just not getting, um, especially from a procedural aspect, because, you know, their primary care physicians can offer them, you know, physical therapy and, you know, medications and, uh, uh, like massage and acupuncture and things like that, but they can't you know, do the injections so much, um, especially like an ultrasound, um, you know, be able to use the ultrasound in a diagnostic way. Um, so I'm kind of bringing that aspect there. And then also a lot of my fluoro experience with spine, um, I'm also bringing to the table there as well. Um, and ultimately, like my, my goal is to sort of help build a, a sports program there in addition to the uh, orthopedic sports colleagues um, and really grow the presence. Because right now, it, it's the part of their department that's a little bit lacking. And for the longest time, they've been trying to hire someone. But I guess it's like budgets would always fall through or whatever. I like to think that it's because there was some higher power out there that was saving that job for me <laughs> for years. Said, here I am and I'm ready. So, Just like um, the plan. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, and, you know, I had a couple different jobs. I was between uh, places that already had sports things in, in place. And, you know, you were going to be joining like a, a wide range of colleagues and, you know, being a part of a team versus like building something from the ground up. And I'm someone that likes to build and like, I'm like super motivated when it comes to like, hey, like, there's this new idea that I have, like, how do we make it happen? I love making things happen. Um, so I just feel like it was just such a great fit. In terms of career, and it, obviously it's academic, I'm gonna be working with like mm -hmm. the residents there. Um, they have hopes of potentially starting a sports fellowship there one day. Um, so just a lot of ways that I can be involved academically as well, which I'm very excited about. 
Um, and ultimately like my goals. So I used to always talk about this with like my mentor and Dr. Stein actually at Northwell uh, was like my like uh, my unofficial mentor in a lot of ways because he always Shout would out give Dr. me a lot Stein. of advice. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but, uh, I used to always tell everyone that would ask me, you know, why do you want to do academics? You know, there's a little, you know, statistic is that, um, there's so few women who go into academics and then there's even fewer women that make it to the top of academics. And like, when you look at like how many people are like assistant versus associate versus like full professors, like the number just gets smaller and smaller as you go. Um, I like my biggest aspiration is to make it to full professor level. So, you know, I love everything about academics. I think not only is there a way to give in academics where you can teach, but like you, there's so many things that you can take from academics. You know, you're always going to be up to date on all the current things that are happening in your own field. You're going to have a hand in putting a lot of those things together. Right. Um, and sports is a field that is forever changing. Spine is a field that's forever changing. Um, so I feel like there's a lot of really great, exciting things that we can do as these like new physicians that are entering these realms. Um, and a lot of it is going to be happening in the academic sphere. So like, you know, getting in there now and sort of starting something from the bottom up and, you know, keeping those networks that I have all around the country with, you know, all the sports and spying kind of people that I know. Um, I feel like there's so much potential for growth and that's always been kind of what I'm about. Like I love just constantly like reinventing and adding to who I am. Um, so that's kind of where I, where I see myself. Hopefully you'll see me as like a full professor somewhere one day. So. Don't forget the little people. Yeah. Okay. You guys are going to be right there with me. I'm not even worried. Jake, do you have anything else from any kind of thing from your perspective that you want to ask? Um, I should have asked this earlier. This is like, um, it's about New York City. So like my wife and I, we're like poor country folk, you know, flyover country. And we're like looking at like, where do we want to go for residency? We're like, New York City, that sounds awesome. And we're like, you know, dazzled by it's the Big Apple and all this stuff. And then whenever we tell that to people, they're just like, that'll never, you, you'll never fit in there. You're, uh, you're too nice for that. They'll, they'll eat you up. Um, you know, it'll just never work out. It, it'll be too expensive. You can't raise your kids there. It's what, what are you thinking? And, and like, these are people who are not New Yorkers. And I'm just curious, I'm kind of like fishing for an answer here where you guys tell me it's awesome and it's doable and everything works out. But like, what's it like living in New York? So it's going to be smaller than probably what you used to. Um, Ultimately, I mean, so I, you know, I went to med school and I did residency kind of like in the New York City area. Like I was mostly on Long Island. Um, and then I did my fellowship year, like really like in New York City. Um, but I'd like to think that over the last like nine years, I guess, um, I've been pretty much like within the, like the, the realm of the city. Right. And I feel like it's been a great experience. I mean, I would think the biggest plug for training in New York, like, yes, it's hard. Yes, it's going to be smaller. Um you know, in, in space versus like kind of maybe if you're used to like a bigger home in terms of bang for your buck for like real estate. Um, yes, it's going to be busy. Traffic is going to make you want to pull your hair out. You're going to listen to a lot of podcasts on your drive. Um, but the biggest, biggest positive for training in New York is like, I just feel like you, it's just so hard to find a more dynamic and diverse environment anywhere else in the country you're going to be seeing so many different kinds of pathologies, um, so many different kinds of people um, from so many different kinds of countries, so many different language exposures. You're going to run into barriers that you probably wouldn't run into anywhere else. So like 
you're going to learn to overcome a lot of things, um, work with a lot of different kinds of people to overcome barriers to help your patients. Um, and I think all of that ultimately is just going to make you a better physician um, and a better like self-sufficient physician because you're going to know how to solve a lot of these problems for your patients um, without needing the help of a thousand people uh, because you've been through it before. Um, I think it's going to make you really desirable to go anywhere afterwards. I mean, I applied to jobs kind of all over the country and a lot of places were like, oh, like you trained in New York. And I was like, yeah. They would always have this like little thing about them, like in their head, we're already putting together like what that. Like, yo, you got some edge yeah, to you. Yeah. Okay. If you could make it there, you could make it anywhere. And that's a line that someone actually said to me. So I think one of the biggest plugs for training in, in the New York area is really that, that like, you know, you're just going to learn a lot, a lot. What I love most about training here is like, there's so many programs like PMNR programs. We've done like kind of didactics and workshops together with other programs, which actually Dr. Zaman led one of them. I can't believe we didn't even bring this up. Um, where our program um, met with her program in the city, and she led kind of a her and her co-fellows led an ultrasound workshop for part of our didactics. So just that like networking of other programs in the area, it's just really tight knit. You see so many different populations that have different needs and and you learn to go over get over those barriers you learn to like care for those people because they deserve that care and you probably will never experience that anywhere else yeah that all sounds great that's that's what i want to hear that that all sounds amazing (laughs) well we want to thank you so much uh for being on the show it's definitely super insightful super helpful thank you for taking time out of your day to chat with us for all our listeners how how can they reach out to you how can they follow you Sure. Um, so anyone that's interested in learning more about PMNR or sports or just have general questions or have recommendations for food in Boston, um, <laughs> you can uh, reach me. So I am on Twitter. Um, it's just at Dr. Zaman. Um, and uh, you can reach me my email too. So it's uh, Zaman, Z-A-M-A-N dot Nadia, N-A-D-I-A at gmail.com. Awesome. And that's about the time we have. So thanks for listening, guys. More episodes on the fellowship series. We're happy to continue this. And thank you again. Thank you for having me. Thanks.